You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the second letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me as prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. His grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, guarded with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. I preached to you this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 1, the verses 8 to 12. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, One thing that we all need as we go through this life is encouragement. What is encouragement? Well, it has to do with giving hope or confidence to someone, usually someone who is in difficult and trying circumstances. Literally, it means to give courage to another person. How is encouragement given? Usually a word or a series of words are used. Sometimes the words are accompanied by a hug. At other times, an appropriate card along with an equally appropriate present may be given. 
Why, there are even times when the simple presence of a family member or friend at an important event or a function that's special can be considered to be encouraging. Yes, and this applies in many and various kinds of situations. It may happen at school when a student is struggling and a teacher gives an encouraging word that gives the student some new hope. It may happen in a hospital setting where a patient badly needs someone to boost their morale after receiving the news of a bad diagnosis. It may happen at work when an employee receives notification that his or her job is no more. So, beloved, the examples go on and on. There are literally thousands and thousands of situations in which encouragement is both needed as well as appreciated. Speaking personally for a moment, I can say to you that all of the encouraging words that I received before Mark's funeral were a real help and a real support to me. They, along with your prayers, were a huge source of strength, a huge source of help. So you see, encouragement is always important. Yes, and that's also what we see now together in our text of this morning. Well, what do we meet there? Well, we meet the Apostle Paul encouraging his young assistant and helper, Timothy. Paul is grooming Timothy for the gospel ministry. And all that Timothy sees as he considers this ministry are hurdles, obstacles, and mountains. This young man needs help desperately. And so Paul writes to him. As far as we know, he sends him two letters. He addresses the first to Timothy, my true son, in the face and Then he proceeds to give all sorts of insights to Timothy how not to deal with troublemakers in the church, worship controversies in the church, office qualifications, various groups, various procedures, all kinds of necessary stuff. And as for his second letter, it too is addressed to Timothy, and this time Paul sends it to Timothy, my dear son. And you'll also notice as you read further on in this second letter that in it Paul speaks much more directly and personally about himself, his calling, as well as his relationship to Timothy. And beloved, that's worth listening to together this morning. So I preach to you on the theme, words of encouragement. We're going to see they're all about God's calling, first of all. Secondly, about God's gospel. And finally, about God's charge. Well, beloved, as chapter 1 of 2 Timothy opens, it's interesting to see just how the Apostle Paul goes about encouraging his young protege. The first thing that you can notice from chapter 1 is that he reminds Timothy that he is the object of a great many apostolic prayers. The second thing that Paul does is tell Timothy that he misses him dearly and longs to see him. And the third thing that Paul mentions has to do with his upbringing at the hands of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, 
and how vibrant and strong his faith has turned out to be. And the fourth thing that Paul reminds Timothy about is about his ordination, or as Paul calls it, his laying on of the hands. So what do we have here? We have here a young man who is, you can say, much prayed about, much loved, much taught, and of whom as well much is expected. There are great expectations here. But you can say as well, there are also great trepidations. Paul knows this. He knows that Timothy needs great doses of encouragement for the great task that lies ahead. But where does one find that? Where does one find great encouragement? And of course, as mentioned already, one seeks it in one's friends and associates. Timothy is not wrong to seek it from Paul, and Paul is not wrong to give it to Timothy. But nevertheless, there is an even better source. For our greatest encouragement comes not from man, but from God. It comes from the Lord God Almighty. But then we ask the question, in what way does this encouragement come from God via Paul to Timothy? Why, you can say, in the knowledge and in the certainty that God has called him. In other words, Paul makes it quite clear that Timothy didn't just stumble one day into this ministry. It didn't just happen. It didn't just fall out of the sky. No, God has called him to it. In other words, this is something that comes from a higher source. It has nothing to do with accident and everything to do with design. To know that what you are about to do is something that has God's signature written all over it makes all the difference in the world. Yes, and Paul insists that it is so. He writes in the verses 8 and 9 that he and Timothy have been set aside for gospel work by God himself. He states, join with me or share with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. And note especially that expression, that last expression, saved us, called us to a holy life. Paul and Timothy have both been saved and they've both been called. And even though Timothy is still young and inexperienced, he needs to know this and he needs to be reminded about his divine call. That'll give him certainty. It'll give him confidence. It'll enable him to stand tall when the troubles and the temptations come along. Timothy needs a firm sense of God's calling. But then it should also be said that that word calling is an often abused word also today. 
I meet young men who are convinced that God has called them to the gospel ministry, and when I ask them why they are so convinced, well, it's because they feel that they possess inside some sort of special, indescribable kind of feeling. Or maybe they believe they've heard some small voice telling them that that's their future. The problem is, however, that life is filled with many voices. And often those voices speak different languages. And the other problem is that sometimes a man feels called, but no one else around him feels that he's called. You know, you can't have an inflated sense of your own ability and importance. So what's best in this case? Perhaps it's best to refrain from using the word calling in a ministry sense unless you've been officially called by a church or have experienced, as the Apostle Paul calls it in verse 6, the laying on of hands. Well, that's, of course, what happened to Timothy. He had holy hands laid on him. There's no doubt about his calling to office. God has called him, it even says, to a holy life, which in this context means a separated life of ministry in his situation. But notice, God has done this not because Timothy is so great, are so good. Because Paul explains, he qualifies it by saying, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. In other words, God has called Timothy, but also Paul, first of all, because he has a plan, a purpose, an intention, an aim, a goal, a purpose. And furthermore, God has called them in spite of their sins and weaknesses, in spite of their flaws and blemishes and mistakes and shortcomings. This calling of God rests ultimately on grace. And grace only. Now in light of all of that, Timothy should feel enormously encouraged. He can now do his work in the conviction that it is God who has called him, that it is God who has a plan for his life, and that it is God who will sustain him in spite of all of his inadequacies and weaknesses. So you see, beloved, God helps Timothy here through Paul. When you hear all of that, there are also any number of things here that should help us as well. It may be true to say that God has not called all of us to the gospel ministry. But you know, as children of God, we all should have a deep and abiding sense of calling nonetheless. I remind you of Romans 1 verse 7 where Paul reminds the believers in Rome that they have all been called to be saints. 
And as well, in Romans 8, verse 28, we are reminded that we have all been called according to His great divine purpose. Sure, beloved, there is a sense in which we have all been called. Called to be holy. Or if you will, called to be prophets, priests, and kings in the service of Almighty God. Called to serve. And by the way, notice also the order that the Apostle Paul uses in our text. He says that God saves us and calls us. In other words, he doesn't save you and then tell you to go sit in a chair and do nothing. He doesn't save you and then never call upon you and upon your gifts and upon your talents. No, God first saves you and then he calls you to get to work with his gifts and his church and his kingdom and in his world. Paul and Timothy may have been saved for ministry, but we all together have been saved and called to service. There are no unemployed saints in the church. An unemployed saint is a contradiction. There are no spectators in the kingdom. Not true spectators in any case. We all have a calling, a task, a job, an office. But then you may also ask, what is it now that lies at the heart and center of this office? What is it that lies at the heart and center of Timothy's ministry? Well, at bottom, as you can read next in our text, it's all about, one word, Christ. It's all about his gospel of grace. It's very special. If you ask what's so very special about this gospel of grace, well, first of all, it's special because of its of source. Paul writes in verse 9, this, this grace, this gospel was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Literally, he writes, before eternal times. In other words, before the world was made, before time began, before history started, before eternity was even conceived, God was busy with us already. Already then he was active. Isn't that surprising? Isn't that astounding? If you think God's plan is short term, you haven't read the scriptures. But notice it's not just surprising, it's also controversial. Many people don't like to hear about this whole idea that already before time began, God was busy with us. Because they know that this invariably gets him into the whole realm of election and predestination. And they don't want to go there. 
But you know, if you take your Bible seriously, you just have to go there. You have no choice. The Bible is full of election and election language. You may not want to go there, but God pushes you there in His Word nonetheless. And it pushes you there not in order so you can have a huge theological debate or disagreement. No, it pushes you there to make you humble and to exclude all of your boasting. And it also pushes you there to give you peace. You and I need to know that God's salvation, His plan of redemption, is so much bigger and vaster and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And that it conforms to His purposes. Not to our little intentions. So, beloved, this gospel is special because of its source and when it began. But this gospel is also special because of its ground. What is it grounded ultimately in? Well, you can say it is grounded in the life, the destroying, as well as the life-giving work of Christ. Notice Paul reminds Timothy, first of all, that Christ is real. He writes, this gospel has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. God may have decided to give us grace before time, but you know he gives us his gracious son in time. God may have, makes his son and our Savior appear at, at Bethlehem. He comes through Mary and from Mary to Joseph before shepherds and eastern wise men. Indeed, in time, Christ appears before all Israel. And his coming is real, genuine, historical. It actually happened. But then understand as well that his coming is also destructive. Paul adds, who has destroyed death. Notice how he uses a few words to describe an unimaginable event. But what's death? Death represents the wages of sin. Death is the last enemy. Death means the grave, dust, ashes. Death comes to all of us without exception. Death is, humanly speaking, the end. But now Paul writes to Timothy that that Christ has destroyed it. And that means he has destroyed all three forms of death. It's physical death, which is a separation of body and soul, but that's done away with. There is spiritual death, which means a separation of the soul from God, but that's also done away with. There is eternal death, which means a separation of body and soul from God forever. And that's also done away with. 
It's all defeated. It's all destroyed by Christ. Well, perhaps you say, sounds good, but is it true? Why then do we still have to die? Why then do we still have to go to the cemetery? Why then do we still mourn? My beloved, by saying that Christ has destroyed death, Paul doesn't mean to say that death has been eliminated from our everyday life. Death is still around. It still happens. But rather what we need to realize is that the word destroy used here means to make ineffective, powerless, idle, to nullify. It's like an insect that's lost its stink. I hate mosquitoes, but I wouldn't hate them at all if they didn't have a sting. For consider, for a believer, death has become what? Paul loves to use the term, a falling asleep in Christ. Does that describe an enemy? Paul says it means going to Christ, being with Christ, and that that's better by far. It means that nothing can separate you, Paul says, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It means, too, that spiritual death has given way to eternal life, and that eternal death is now impossible. But notice it also means more. Positively, Paul refers to Christ having brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that means that one day, we shall either be changed in a moment by Christ, or we shall come back from heaven with Christ. And this means, too, that the resurrection of the body is coming and that everlasting life is our future. There is truly life after death because Christ is a life-giving Savior. And, beloved, is there not huge encouragement in that? It's encouraging, of course, to know that you've been called by God, but, you know, it's even more encouraging to be able to spread abroad this gospel of God. This gospel that has as its contact, tent, and center Christ appearing, Christ as death-destroying, Christ as immortality-bringing. How that should embolden Timothy. Not only us, not only him, but also us. How that should change our lives and our hopes and our dreams. Through the grace and gospel have visited us in Jesus Christ. 
And together they bless us with a whole new outlook. Most fantastic hope. And a most glorious and unimaginable future. We are with Christ today and we live and we shall be with Christ tomorrow and we shall live even more. And death has lost its sting. Truly how blessed we are. But then you also know that whenever a scripture talks about blessings, it's very quick often to attach a task, a charge, a duty to those blessings. And you will find also in our text three specific aspects or three, a threefold charge. As a result of this calling, as the result of this most blessed gospel, what now has to happen? Well, the first thing is this gospel needs to be dispersed and spread and communicated. Notice, Paul calls himself a herald and an apostle and a teacher of the gospel. Timothy is not called an apostle. As far as we know, Timothy is not an eye-ear witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore cannot be an apostle. But he is called to herald, which means to officially and accurately proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And he is called to teach. And as for us, beloved, we may be neither apostles nor ordained preachers. Well, we all do have a a charge to spread this gospel abroad, to let its light shine. It's not for nothing that we are called in Scripture children of light. And light is meant to be dispersed, to be spread, to remove and push away the darkness. It's a call we've all received. The entire church of Jesus Christ communicate the gospel to a world living in death and in darkness. But there's also a second part to the charge, and that is that we may have to suffer, if need be, for this gospel. Paul writes, that's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet, I'm not ashamed because I know in whom I have believed. And earlier he says to Timothy, so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join in with me in suffering for the gospel. You know, the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, born, ministering, suffering, being crucified, dead, buried, risen, ascended, reigning, and returning. It needs to get out. And it needs to get out no matter what the cost or even what the pain. For the sake of the gospel, do not avoid suffering. 
Open wide your mouths. Live bold your lives. Realize that often the gospel, which is so great and glorious, becomes for the servants of God and the children of light a gospel of suffering. Don't avoid the suffering because if you avoid the suffering, you'll receive the shame. But then there's also, beloved, a third part to this charge. We're not only to communicate the gospel and to suffer for it if necessary, we're also supposed to guard the gospel. Paul writes, he is convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to guard something. So what does Timothy need to guard? Well, you find it all over this second letter of Paul to Timothy. He needs to guard the gospel. He needs to guard the truth. He needs to guard the precious deposit. He needs to follow the pattern of the sound words. In other words, he's to defend the gospel. He's to keep it pure and whole. And true, he's to guard against its corruption and its distortion and its degradation. He's to stand tall and firm for the contents of the gospel. And you know, that's something that the church has been charged with, but so often the church has fallen down on that charge. If you were to ask yourself, who are the worst enemies of the gospel? It aren't the atheists. It aren't the agnostics. It's those who so often profess to be Christians, but who don't believe what the Christian book teaches and affirms. The enemy is so often within the church instead of outside the church. We grow up with the gospel and after a while we think that we can figure it out or reason it out or explain it all. And when there is something that we can't explain, we discard it. We make a gospel after our own liking. Beloved, that's so, so terribly dangerous for the life and the well-being of the people of God. You destroy the gospel and you destroy the foundations of your life and of your faith. That's why Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern. Guard the truth. Guard it with your life. Because this gospel that centers on Jesus Christ is the most precious gospel in all the world. And so, beloved Timothy and we all should be encouraged 
take this gospel, communicate it, suffer for it if necessary, guard it well. God's given us this sacred charge. And it's a charge He will enable us to meet and to keep thanks to His power and by His grace. So be encouraged. Be greatly encouraged. As Paul says elsewhere, your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.